Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. This week, I was delighted to invite both Dr. Poonam and Dr. Stephanie, two GPs, to talk with me about being lockdown mums, nutrition during pregnancy and postpartum, nutrition as a doctor, health prevention, and we even got onto the topic of doctors on social media. Stephanie is a GP and a mum to two little girls, her youngest being born during the first lockdown. She has a particular interest in women's and children's health. Her eldest daughter has multiple food allergies and Stephanie and her husband have been through IVF as their youngest is an IVF baby. So both of these topics are very close to her heart too. Dr Poonam is a GP based in Scotland and she has two children, one born during the first lockdown. She's a regular in the media and you'll have probably seen or heard her on BBC Radio Live, BBC Radio Scotland and ITV This Morning. Both Stephanie and Poonam also co-host the Medic Mum podcast where they share family medicine and musings on parenthood. I'm really delighted to welcome both Dr Poonam and Dr Stephanie on to talk with me today about being a lockdown mum, nutrition and our shared ethos of providing evidence-based information to help empower people to look after their own health. So firstly, many, many congratulations on your not-so-new babies. How did you find giving birth just as a coronavirus pandemic was starting? And as a period of such huge uncertainty for us all, I imagine that that was heightened as a new mum as well. So how, how did you find that? So for me, both my experiences were wildly different. And actually, um, this would be lovely to, to talk about because Steph and I have, have discussed this in our own podcast where things like both of our pregnancies, both times were so different. For me, um, I was already kind of trying to unpack uh, a birth trauma from many years before that I'd had. Um, so I was kind of, you know, in that kind of fear stage already, getting therapy to try and deal with how this pregnancy was going to go when suddenly in my third trimester we entered the first cases of COVID and um, as as the weeks went on and I was still working and all that uncertainty really kind of played in and heightened all the anxieties that I had. Um, I guess the big shift happened was connecting with other mums, realising that's when Steph and I first started talking on Instagram was that I suddenly wasn't the only mum that was going through this. So for the first time, that kind of collective fear kind of came together in a way. Um, And I switched into this very kind of reactive living because I think up until that point, it was very much like, oh God, what's the birth going to be like? Planning, planning, planning. And then suddenly every day becomes so became so unknown and so changeable that it became in the okay today I just need to get through today Mm -hmm. how am I going to manage today okay what's the news telling us today you know so that I think that was the big difference was that just suddenly going right into the present moment and trying to control the things that I could and accepting that there was a lot of things I couldn't control but really leaning in on the the sort of support networks around me and I must say that the the antenatal staff like everyone really just stepped up and some to really scoop you and to look after you so that was my experience really in a nutshell 
And do you take away that sort of, you know, living in the present moment? Do you think you'll take that forward? I really hope so. I re- I've never been somebody who's been, you know, truly able to kind of absorb the present moment. I've always had that. I love the present, but always doing the typical, stressing a little bit about tomorrow, kind of reminiscing and stressing about the past. Whereas I think now the big shift in me, and it's interesting because even my loved ones, like my mum's like, oh, you were never like this. It's just like, okay, well, it's fine. It is what it is, but one day at a time, all we have is today. Um, but I guess at the moment, everything is, and it remains mm-hmm. changeable. So I do hope that we can carry forward and, and move forward in a present way, because actually it's the healthiest way to live. I agree, absolutely. And that, you know that's a great positive to have come out of a really tricky year. How about you, Steph? How was it different for you? Yeah, so I guess um, second pregnancy or kind of, you know, subsequent pregnancy is always different compared to the first. Um, So I, uh, so we similarly had our babies at the beginning of lockdown. So there was a period of time where we were pregnant without the pandemic. And already that is different, right? You've got like the first pregnancy, you're like, oh, what fruit or vegetable are we this week in terms of kind of bump size? And like, I had all of these photos, like a really nicely kind of diary. And second time round, I just don't have anything. I've like the odd one where I've like remembered. Um, but yeah, you've got like a toddler running around or, you know, a child to look after and you kind of forget that you're pregnant a lot of the time. So I found that that was already different in itself. And then pandemic kind of hits and I have to say, I think I was a little bit, um, I was almost a little bit like in denial, maybe a little bit ignorant at the beginning, you know, because things kind of gradually escalated, didn't they? And I remember at the beginning, people were like, it's just like the flu. I'm like, yeah, it's just like the flu. It's not a big deal. But then obviously, as the days and weeks go on, you realise that it's not just like the flu. And actually, things were ramping up and getting worse. And I guess I was kind of working at the time you're seeing more people come in worried about it more people coming in wearing masks like masks are so normal now aren't they but Mm. back then it was like a really huge thing people like oh you're wearing a mask um and so slowly your anxiety does start to uh ramp up a little bit and you do start thinking about well what's the birth going to be like uh people were then messaging me on Instagram saying my friend had to give birth alone like do you think this is what's going to happen and there, so there is that side where you just, like you said, uncertainty, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, very much like Poonam, I think I just kind of went into a bit of survival mode and doing that whole kind of taking each day at a time and just being like, okay, well, what can I control today? Um, and just trying not to think about it too much because I think otherwise I was just getting quite overwhelmed, um, trying to avert my eyes from the news too much as well. Um, yeah, so it was a, it was definitely a lot to deal with, but I think it sounds, I, you know, we very much, and we've kind of, that's like you're saying, how we connected even more. Um, mm. We were kind of doing a lot of the same things. And I guess that's maybe what a lot of people were doing at, at the time as well. And do you think then that you focused on other things like trying to sort of be living the day or, you know, even what you were eating or what you were, you know, exercising things to try to to distract you almost from the enormity of the situation? Or do you think it was yeah. too stressful? And so, you know, you felt the opposite, that it was just easier to, you know, just comfort yourself with biscuits. How did you, <laughs> how did you find it? 
I think probably a little bit of both. I think at the beginning, definitely because it was kind of total lockdown, wasn't it? So I had my um, my eldest at home. And so she took up a lot of time and she was a distraction in itself. But certainly with the whole amount of you know physical activity that we were, we were allowed to do, using that time um, just to be outside um, and go for a walk, uh, yeah, definitely helped in terms of managing kind of mental health. From a nutrition point of view, I think, like I said, it varies. There'll be some days where I think in lockdown, everyone kind of made a lot of effort. Well, there were the, there were like the group of people that made a lot of effort, didn't they? Like the sourdough bread making crew. Mm. And then my husband definitely fell into that category. He didn't make bread, but decided to kind of make all fa- sorts of like fancy things that he always wanted to, but never had the time to. Um, so there were days like that where you felt like you were kind of doing well. And then other days where, yeah, you just have like a rubbish day, don't you? And you just... Mm. All you want to do is comfort eat and that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, and I think especially in the pandemic where there've been so few normal, you know, treats or, or sort of opportunities to get out and have other, you know, sort of things that lift your mood, like exercise or, or get, well, you know, going to the gym, for example, or going to a theatre mm. or, you know, meeting friends, giving someone a hug that I think a lot of people have turned to comfort eating because it's been so stressful and because yeah, there's been I think not much else. It was interesting because towards the latter part, um, like, yeah, certainly I found that people like have fallen I had into two camps. The, the, you know, my first the people that are delighted that not having to commute like and have got lots more time things. and think this is amazing. So I can never forget that my husband's on my health and nutrition and cooking and wellness exercise. And those people are completely frazzled. That have got that, mainly sort of the young mums and small children that right are, the, are finding it totally overwhelming because they don't have any childcare, no like support, and I, I need a break. I need a break from everything. And and meal prep to the warm and, stuff, and, you know, the thought like of doing anything extra is just completely overwhelming. So, how did you find it, Pooja? Actually, found it was kind of deficient in iron and all the rest of it. So, you know, we we can hear about those things. But, you know, I came back out of hospital and I was flung straight into here was a newborn and then schools closed and I was homeschooling at the same time was trying to establish breastfeeding with my baby. And I very much went into I've always kind of sat in the camp of like keeping it real and being realistic and not being, you know, I don't tend to follow any diets and don't restrict myself. And it's always been about balance. Um, But I think I've probably this past year given myself more permission to to just go with how I feel like we are a healthy household anyway so you know we know that we do tend to cover making sure that we're eating a kind of wide kind of range of healthy things but equally my goodness were there lots and lots of days where those chocolate biscuits were getting eaten hidden perhaps in the utility at times um maybe those glasses of wine you know but I think that I just I've very much maintained that whole keep it real and and times have been stressful. Um, and one of the joys of lockdown was being able to bake or being able to enjoy the food. Um, but for the first time, I'm a big advocate for social prescribing. And it did feel like our one prescription of the day was that you could go out for an hour to exercise. And that was my solace. And that was certainly mm. my little boy loves nature. And uh, one of the things that he said very early on was, if we can't hug people, can we hug more trees? So the thing that kept us going every day was getting out and exercising. And then I would probably justify that biscuit in the evening as a result. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so lovely to hear your your son say that. I mean, that's so adorable, to be honest. 
You must have been really touched when you said that. It was, it was because I think that we haven't, we didn't have, especially if you kind of go back to what that summer was like, you know, you, you were craving and it was all new where you couldn't meet your loved ones, your your parents, your friends, and when especially having had new babies, mm-hmm. the one thing you wanted was people to come around and almost rescue you, be there for you, be that support, that shoulder. Um, so I think finding that love through the eyes of like my little boy and through nature and just getting comfort every day where you could hear like the birds, you know, singing and all the rest of it. I think you tapped into a space that because of our busyness pre-pandemic, we never tapped into. So it was nice. Yeah. You, you saw like, you know, everyone talked about it. We've never seen skies, the sunsets that we've seen in this past year. When have we ever paid attention to the, the colours changing the way autumn brought us the most majestic of, of mm-hmm. seasons? But because we had the space, I think it was just coming into that zone with your families and saying, OK, well, what, what are the beautiful things that we can take off? And what I found really lovely was that my parents, who only live 10, 15 minutes down the road, but they would take pictures of like the sunset and send it to us. And we would be like, oh, we're watching the same sky as you, which is what my wee boy would say. And actually, in some way, we found connection. Um, yeah. And I think there there will be special moments that we look back in times to come. Like it was a bittersweet time. Uh, but I do hope that we take forward some of the lessons that we did learn. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And at times of immense challenges and, and also a huge number of people have tragically died. But I hope that some... Some positive have come out of it, the sort of re-engaging in nature and living more in the present. And and some people, I think, have had that desire to get healthy and, and seeing the sort of the risks of obesity and type 2 diabetes and, and how that affects risk of COVID and, and outcome and that diet is really important for long-term health. As much as, you know, we've had a difficult year, we shouldn't beat ourselves up about you know, out on food in a way. It's also about trying to make those healthy choices and and trying to eat for physical hunger and find other ways of getting those emotional pick-me-ups not trying to try, not choose the biscuit but the walk or the tree hug or, or whatever it is the, the the hobby or whatever but yeah do how did yeah. you find it in the beginning in lockdown were you able to get any food because I I know that we found it an immense struggle so we were a shielding family and um it was, it was really challenging we were really struggled with getting online deliveries and that was a, a really difficult time actually how how did you find that stuff yeah so um we live in southwest london so fortunately uh we've got lots of little shops around us kind of locals and then you've got the kind of the bigger supermarket so in terms of accessibility i think we were quite fortunate but still in that situation um it was still difficult. Um, you would go to kind of the bigger supermarkets and uh, firstly, you've got to queue for ages. Um, I kind of used, played the pregnancy card at the beginning. Um, I managed to get in, but uh, yeah, you'd be kind of go to the shelf and you try and find flour and there's no flour. Like I don't, never seen, you know, you just go into the supermarket on a normal day and you never see empty shelves really. And so I think that in itself was quite alarming. And then obviously there's the whole toilet roll issue as well. Mm. You know, people fighting for toilet roll, which was just awful really and I'm so glad that that hasn't happened again throughout all of the other lockdowns that we've been through um but yes I found like you know things like dried pasta and rice and tinned food like all of the things that you could kind of stockpile and put in your pantry for the next few months all of those were it's quite slim pickings really so you had to kind of be quite creative I think 
what I said to my husband was like, look, I don't mind. We could eat anything, couldn't we, if we had to. But the main thing that I was worried about was, well, my little one, she wasn't weaning at the time. So again, I wasn't as worried about her, but it was my eldest. And you know what toddlers can be like Mm -hmm. in terms of their diet. One day they like something, the next day they don't. So that was my main concern was her. And because she's got a few... um, food allergies as well I just was wanting to make sure that I could get all of her specific things that she needs like there's a specific um soya milk that she has and I was just yeah really determined to try and make sure that at least we had that in the house um and and things for her to eat so uh, luckily we managed to find it but again through Instagram I connected with a few mums who were saying you know it's really awful because they went to the supermarket and they couldn't find the specific milk that their little one has and I just and you know with like formula as well I guess it's so far reaching in terms of what that can apply to um or people who've got intolerances etc um like celiacs for example but yeah so that I think that was um that was really difficult to to think that some people weren't managing to get things that they wanted um, and especially if you think of like the vulnerable people as well. Um, I remember there was the, that fantastic initiative, wasn't there, where you could fill in a slip of paper and kind of pop it through the letterbox of anyone on your street who maybe needed help and kind of leaving their number and just saying, look, if you need anything, I can drop something um, by. So I think, again, it's one of those things where through struggle and adversity, there came out these like really lovely moments of, generosity and a kind of a sense of community as well which kind of managed to erase all of the fights over toilet roll in the supermarket aisles yeah I imagine it must have been quite stressful though with a newborn as well because it's difficult enough the toddler and a newborn and not sleeping at night to sort of juggle that of the difficulties of going to supermarket and finding the the shelves of where I I imagine that was pretty tough to be honest and um, and yes I I sympathize as well having had kids with allergies and even just normal toddlers it's it's making sure that they've got the food. I agree, we could eat anything, but it's about mm-hmm. about them. So how, how did you find it, Poonam? I would say that I think we were really kind of fortunate in that, you know, my husband was working and he had the he was on the kind of NHS um, kind of scheme. So we could still like, you know, he would kind of do the once a week thing, get in early um, or after shift and kind of get what we needed. But to be honest, we're an Indian house as well. So we had lots of lentils. So I was like, we can't go wrong with dal. We can't go wrong with pasta, you know, <laughs> loads of frozen veg and like the staples were there kind of really to keep you going. So I don't think I ever panicked about food and didn't really have any issues in terms of accessibility um, because we kind of tend to have pretty kind of simple meals and kind of accepted, okay, there's going to be no fine dining for a while and um, we'll just live on cake. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, I, I think it, it could have been it could have been a lot worse. And I think, as Steph said, there it really was kind of a stark reminder of just how fortunate we were. I think there was a lot of gratitude for the situation we were in. Um, and I think, yeah, our street as well, all those lovely initiatives. We've got quite a few elderly people. I remember my husband kind of doing shops for them. And I think just kind of bringing that kind of collectiveness is, is the memory that I have. You know, I didn't really hear in my personal circle of anyone struggling with stockpiling things or, um, and I think that everyone did just step in and help one another which was nice but yeah I don't think I've eaten that much dal in my life than I did in that point maybe that's why I can't quite stomach dal at the minute <laughs> 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 well, a, good, a good healthy stay for the yeah dal. exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> 
touching on sort of eating then during pregnancy and a postpartum period, do you find that, you know, you're obviously GPs and in your mums, do you find that patients ask you much about that or do they sort of ask, you know, do you think, think they ask their midwives or, or sort of other places or you know, do you get that directed back to you? don't really tend to get much in the way. I think when usually like pre-pandemic was lovely because you'd actually get to see more of the mums, whereas now a lot of our consultations are done remotely. Um, but you have that general conversation at the beginning with somebody who's just found out they're pregnant and you tend to kind of talk to them about what safe foods there are, what to avoid. And generally we tend to direct them to the NHS kind of guidance of, you know, the big endless list that we look at when we're pregnant ourselves. I remember talking to so many patients and then I was pregnant. I was like, what can I eat again? <laughs> what can I not eat again? Is this safe to eat again? <laughs> like, because I guess the thing is, you know, as doctors, we're not really taught about nutrition as such. And it's important that we stay in our lanes. So whilst we can give very general advice and obviously guide our patients um, in terms of, sort of the nitty gritties of nutrition, we don't tend to go into that. So um, and as a patient myself, a lot of the things that I discovered I could or could not do um, was really through research myself. Um, and I think you do, you, you become quite um, sort of vested in your own kind of health situation um, and you look into things yourself. I've never really needed to speak to a dietitian, fortunately not had any issues with my health that way. Um, I don't know, Steph, are you different or do you kind of follow much the same? No, I would say pretty, yeah, very similar in that um, I think generally if you think about like, yeah, so when people come in and they're pregnant, you talk about all of those things that they should avoid. Um, <laughs> you've got, uh, you can reel off a few, can't you? And then the rest of them, you're like, let's have a look at the NHS website together. <laughs> just because there are so many and some of them are just so random as well. Like I think that, uh the ration for tuna is, you know, a specific number of cans. Yeah. You can't go beyond however many numbers of cans per week. So it's, it's, you know, it's not something that's just easily accessible. Um, but I think postpartum, I can probably remember a handful of conversations where mums have literally said, you know, what should I be doing from a nutrition point of view? Um, and maybe that's because uh, they're directing questions elsewhere. Or like you said, maybe they're doing their own research but I'm sure that a lot of it especially having kind of been through it myself is because uh we don't tend to put ourselves first <laughs> we don't tend to think about what we're doing I think as a GP I know that's what I should be doing but certainly again you know having lived through it like practically it doesn't always turn out that way and I think that that is maybe part of it as well is there's not as there's less focus on you and there's more focus on the baby um and actually from a cultural point of view this is really interesting I think Poonam you may have the same thing but in that postnatal period for for Chinese people we have this period traditionally called confinement so you're meant to stay at home for gosh I can't even remember now but I think it's at least 30 days yeah we've got to stay 40. at home mm. is it 40 and you're yeah. not meant to leave the house or do anything and uh you're not even meant to shower I said to my mum I was like I'm really sorry I can't Shut do that I've like, I not I can't heard do of that, that one. one before yeah I think it was it's the, the theory is that Chinese people have um they have this uh theory about, about like hot things versus cold things so we if you do have that. a shower yeah so if you have a shower it's meant to be like a cold thing and not meant to be good so after pregnancy after giving birth you're meant to have everything that's warm so 
you know having a shower is not a good thing but in terms of like food and things you're meant to have um things like ginger a lot of sesame oil a lot of kind of broths and everything so from a food point of view and again you've got relatives like making that food for you bringing it Mm. to you and so you don't have to think about it at all and obviously we couldn't really do the same this time round. and that was something that my mum um was really kind of upset about because that's what she did after I had my eldest um but she was the one who's kind of bringing me all these kind of rich like kind of lovely broths and things and I guess from that point of view it was lovely because it was I knew that I was eating things that were nutritious and good um but equally it's that support as well isn't it you they're taking that burden off you um you know thinking of what am I going to eat today um so I find it interesting I mean before I used to think it was such a backwards thing I was like mum confinement please come on like I'm not doing that and I didn't I I, you know I went out and there were things that I um it was a bit of a mix and match basically um but now actually reflecting on it I can so see the value of it um yeah that's so interesting you say that because I did not realize we had such an overlapping cultures that way because even in Indian culture you have 40 days where mum basically gets bed rest and similarly like you I remember like just kind of thinking what a load of nonsense you know but you really miss that like because we have like all the hot foods it's all about giving mum heat so it's like and we have this thing that the um sort of the elders will make for you it's called pinjiri and it's full of like all these different types of nuts and like cinnamon and like spices and like it's just really grounding and wholesome and you're supposed to have that every day and it's supposed to encourage sort of milk production and healing and you have like the turmeric milk the golden milk and you drink that with like um uh oh saffron and you know like it's just it's such gorgeous sort of wholesome nutritious stuff that um, you get and everyone obviously that you know takes care of mum has lots of bed rest and things Um, and I think it's just it's really not only is it the preservation of that culture but it's the love that gets put into that and I desperately miss that like although my mum kind of dropped off the pinjiri and I I just remember I cried every time I ate it because I was like I just Mm. like you could feel all the love in the food and I think that's just it It it's just such like you want your mum or someone to kind of nurture you as a mum too when you're in that very kind of fourth trimester vulnerable stage um but it's incredible what that food can actually bring you as well uh and okay so yeah it's interesting we keep learning how much we've got in common in terms of I know this is a great little chat we're having here (laughs) so interesting so my husband's Turkish and they have the same thing so they have I think it's 30 or 40 days um similar confinement I don't know what it's called in Turkish but it's very much about the mum and someone else taking care of the mum while the mum takes care of the baby and I think probably I felt the same probably before but now I can so so for me learning about um so when I became a registered nutritionist I had an understanding then of what you were actually should be eating the postpartum period which I never had as a as a mother or breastfeeding mother or even a doctor and it's only through learning about nutrition and becoming that that I I now understand it and I wrote I've done an Instagram live with you Steph I think back in the summer about you know nutrients and breastfeeding so and and the health long-term health of the mum and so I wrote my little nutrition checklist because I'd never I had no idea and I wanted to sort of help support breastfeeding mums about it but 
Um, and I think that having that period of confinement really helps to look after after the mum and help support her and her nutrition and recovery from a really major ordeal, giving birth or, or having a section. So I and I um, it's one of the things. Yeah, I heard uh, this this thing. Obviously, this is sort of going to resonate more with people who are doctors or, or um, but the sort of overlapping similarities of people that are of being a mum and a newly qualified doctor that you've got long hours exhaustion night shifts you're surviving on coffee you've got this massive responsibility a bit of imposter syndrome you've maybe done like a sort of di like as equivalent of like an nct uh, course or you know a trust induction day that didn't prepare you for the job at all and then you've got these endless tasks the sort of drudgery all and then you're it's finding even the struggle to go to the loo, but you never get to hand over. And I, I thought that was really quite amusing. So I think with you, Stella. But can I just say that I still would say that still doing that as a doctor is 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 so much easier than the mum shift. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you get, get to, to clock off, right? You can't take a day <laughs> off from being a mum. Like you just can't request annual leave. Like you just can't. Go. That should be you a can't. new thing. <laughs> oh that's so true and it is something that actually we do need to incorporate more of i think in our western world Mm. with some of the adoption of these like probably eastern kind of um sort of or old ancient actually just kind of uh remedies or traditions because the one thing that is lacking particularly in the west is how much the mother is prioritized and we don't prioritize mum enough Agree. And it's, I think, yeah. you know, it's so hard, especially when you're a new mum and you're prioritising your baby and it's all very new. It's, it's really hard to, to prioritise yourself in any of that because it's such a massive learning curve. And if that's, you know, the learning curve for, for your first baby, by the time you get to, you know, your second or third, while you, you know, have had all that experience, you've then got, you're up all night feeding and then you running around after toddler during the day. So, finding any time for you or focus on anything else I think is is really tough but um, it's so important yeah yeah no absolutely so I heard you talk about on your um podcast uh your, your joint podcast but I heard Poonam saying about being a GP your sort of role is to care and I I really love that holistic approach to your to patients and I think that preventative medicine is so important and you know, diet is such an important modifiable risk factor. I just wanted to, to sort of ask you if you felt you, if you had adequate training on nutrition, um, either during medical school or during your, you know, your, your BTS or GP training and and what you thought about it, really, what you felt about it. Uh, we didn't get much. In fact, I'm not sure really if we got any training in terms of nutrition when I was at medical school. Um, I know that that is now changing, thank goodness. But you know it was just really what you picked up on kind of the management of certain long-term lifestyle related diseases that you would know well you should cut down on this or maybe eat a bit more of that but that was the extent of it um and I do think that somewhere there was a disservice to to us in the preparation to becoming doctors because food as well as things like exercise and sleep and management of mental well-being these things are really invaluable prescriptions that we can actually use to manage and treat and reverse disease so therefore we need to have priority given to the education of that rather than it just being part of a guideline in the management of Um, and certainly our roles as gps part is management and treatment but a lot of it is actually educating our patients and i 
kind of arrived to an interest in nutrition and actually lifestyle medicine um, after the birth of my son seven years ago when I found myself on the patient side and was very unwell and after kind of trying to seek help for my postnatal depression at that time you know and just being given a prescription of an antidepressant was a big turning point because it wasn't the pill that was going to fix that me like fix me in that moment what I needed was I needed to try and understand the root cause of where I was at and I needed to try and figure out how to walk again essentially and the things that brought me back to were connecting with exercising and by that I meant it you know was just getting out in the fresh air was about appreciating movement was about recognizing that I felt good after that those were the natural mood boosters that I needed starting to eat with a view to healing you know food brought a lot of healing to me Um, and actually as I started then looking into what lifestyle medicine was started really looking at how much of the conditions coming in up to 70% of what we see as GPs in our practice is lifestyle related diseases, type two diabetes, Mm -hmm. obesity, heart disease, you know, a lot of mental health problems, certain types of cancers. When you really take a patient back down on their timeline history, you know, you find that there was opportunities there where perhaps a major life event happened, perhaps lifestyle habits changed. And at that point, really, if we can intervene with a patient, we can help prevent a disaster happening later on. You know, that that is that is incredible. And we have that role to play. So any of the nutritional kind of education that I've had since then um, has been self-directed. Uh, and I think that a lot of doctors that are now waking up to this, it has come through either learning through themselves, through their patients or having loved ones that have perhaps been there, which has then brought them into appreciating the power of lifestyle. Um, and a lot of doctors have then gone forth and, and really changed the landscape into making this more accessible for doctors. Uh, so, And I do think things are changing. Uh, but in terms of where I'm at, I think it's, it's still I learn a lot every single day um, and it never ceases to amaze me. I think that's part of part of any learning that almost being a doctor or you know, a nutritionist or a dietitian, all of these things, there's more to learn every day as we understand more and more. And certainly with things like the microbiota, I feel we're at the you know, infancy of understanding that. But I, I also wonder whether I think we've really made sea changes in in smoking and smoking prevention. I wonder now if we'll have the same changes, we'll be able to do the same thing for obesity, if we'll be able to reverse that tide at all. Yeah, I think it's all about having those conversations. I think being trained to not just be reactive, but to think with a view to preventative and capturing any opportunity that you can with people. Um, because we all do, not just our patients, me, you, all of us, we've all got somewhere where small changes can be made. And it's those little small changes that have the power to make a significant difference because we're so used to just thinking of the now. We don't Mm -hmm. think of our health. And I know it's different to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, but in terms of the longevity of our life, we need to think of it in terms of what does health look like? What are my health goals at 50, at 60, at 70? What do I want that to look like? And when you visualize that to be with your family, with your children, to be in health, to be moving around, then you need to start that kind of working towards that now. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that they wait until the moment where they have had the heart attack or the stroke or been diagnosed with the diabetes to be like, oh, gosh, 
I could, I, I could actually have prevented that, right? Well, I can actually change that. And with type two diabetes, when we when we see, I mean, it's nothing that brings me more joy than when somebody manages to reverse a condition. Like, oh my goodness, it is just mm. incredible because Absolutely. you know you know that not only have you helped them sort of give them so many more years to their lives, but it's just that that hard work that they've put into investing in themselves is just. I mean, that is that's why we become doctors. But healthy, you know, quality life where yeah. they can enjoy those years as Absolutely. well. They're not having all the yeah. side effects of gestational diabetes and yeah. everything that goes with it. But yeah, and I, I think it's um, it's incredibly important. How how did you find it, Steph? Did you have a similar experience to Poonam? Yeah, really similar. I just I don't recall nutrition being a huge part of our training, which is um, incredible given like what you said, the conditions and the patients that we see. And I think that anything that we did learn, like you said, talking about how, you know, what does someone who wants to kind of reduce their cardiovascular risk, what does their diet look like? I think knowing what people should be doing is very different from being able to actually counsel people about it like and I think that there is so much to be said for being able to um like you like Poonam touched on like kind of having that education about how how to counsel a patient about it instead of because I think it's so important like the GP consultation in itself is such an art and it's such a skill that um I am still learning how to do um but just sitting at someone down and saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, this and this, but you need to be eating that like that's not really going to be very effective. So it's no it's being able to deliver the information in an effective way that's actually going to um, make them feel empowered, because I think sometimes maybe what happened with the smoking thing as well initially was people would think that the doctor was essentially telling them off and. Mm when you take a slightly different approach to that um people are obviously a lot more responsive like i think for all of us no if someone's telling you well you shouldn't do this and you feel like you're being told off you're not really going to absorb that information and kind of take it in so i think that learning how to do that is um i think it's something it's something that i am still learning uh but i think it's something that's really key and should hopefully be included in training I agree. And I think, you know, sort of supporting people with the, to to get to a healthy weight goal as opposed to fat shaming people or, yeah. you know, I mean, there's mm. some awful stories, you know, you see on social media and things about that. And, um, you know, it's, it's really tragic. But um, and I think also it must be really hard, though, as a GP that you've got really limited time, you've got limited resources, especially now mm. during COVID, where you know, you've all had to sort of pivot and go on online that everything's obviously lots of people are being sick and off sick or isolating you've had limited resources and now you've got you know the sort of big backlog of of patients and probably referrals and operations and everything and while obviously the nhs has been fantastic and you know the doors are out you know have always been open throughout this just in that 10 minute consultation it certainly so when i was a pediatrician i don't think i ever managed to see anyone in 10 minutes probably and because by the time i'd taken a history and examined them and you know given them a management plan i had the sort of luxury of 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 a bit more time in a and e um and it must be really hard so i can completely understand why you're fighting fires and why you're it's much harder to get that preventative medicine in and, and have the time to sit down and talk to someone about their diet and not you know do it in a judgmental way because you're under huge time pressure and you've got it's much easier and quicker to give someone a medicine as well than I think it is to talk about their diet and 
and you know really see behavioral change and and want for them to want to change and it's it's much easier as well I think for for people to take a, a pill as well in many ways and which is why vitamins are probably so popular because people sort of think oh well I can pop a vitamin supplement and then I don't need to worry so much about my diet whereas you know, most people don't really need vitamins it's just probably more of a marketing thing than anything else so I think it's really challenging I think you do yeah. you know GPs do an amazing job I have to say I do see a lot of patients who will ask about the vitamins and the supplement side of things and again having that conversation with them talking about well you know it's only if you have a true deficiency etc um because yeah I think people are looking for I guess a quick fix is a bad way to to describe it but they are looking for something and looking to they want something to take or they want uh the newest I'll get a lot of questions about the newest fad diet you know what do you think about the keto diet or do you think I should do this or patients will start telling me come in and request blood tests because they've been doing all these strange diets they want to see if they've made any effect at all on you know certain cholesterol levels or liver function etc and I think that um I think people are just grasping and trying to find something but we're all kind of uh, and I'm sure I've been guilty of that sometimes, but I think we are forgetting that just, I say just, but going back to the basic principles is actually what we all collectively need to focus on rather than looking for something um, weird and wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so much more sustainable to just sort of eat healthily most of the time, but it is quite hard. I think most people do find it quite hard. And so, very people will go on diets or supplements or all of those things as well so how did do you find the same Poonam that people are asking about diets and things as well or? yeah I mean you wake up every day and you just don't know what you're going to be reading the next minute and I think social media definitely has not helped that because there is so much misinformation out there everybody has the next big quick fix and sadly a lot of it is is very harmful so people then do tend to call up and ask the GP and if we don't know or we can't facilitate or don't understand it or perhaps discourage them from following something that could be a fad diet then it's almost like you're seen to be the person who just you know isn't interested but coming back to the point that you said a few minutes ago about the 10 minute models like the beauty that we have that no other specialty has is that we have continuity of care Mm. so you know a lot of problems don't take more than 10 minutes and sometimes when you hit a hit a, a kind of patient where you recognize that there's actually that there's a lot of different levels to that you can spend more time with them or you can bring them back to discuss different aspects of you know their their history uh, and you can take the time for kind of preventing them and lots of us are doing that uh, and i think that that is it's it's been a lovely shift I think in the last few years in general practice where more of our focus is starting to go looking at how can we manage the chronic disease because it is us alone that manage the chronic disease mm. um and with a lot of people becoming you know whilst the downside is yes there's lots of bad diets and lots of misinformation people are becoming more informed about their health through their own researching online so people will come and say you know I'd like to do this or I'd like to do that um and it's it's always kind of meeting them where they're at trying to educate with compassion trying to well always remaining non-judgmental because I think it's when you take away that barrier of I'm the doctor you're the patient like that, that there's a beautiful like Steph said earlier there's an art to it but 
you know, when you just allow that connection to go and appreciate that very, at any point, you too could be the patient. And how would you like your doctor to speak to you? And how would you like them to approach perhaps a health challenge that you're facing? Um, you know, ultimately, we're all human. And it's it's not easy to start up anything or to change a long standing habit. Uh, and I do think that we've got more power than we kind of take for granted, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, people listen. Absolutely. You know, people still people still listen to doctors. And I, I think that's great. And I, I think sort of coming um, from what you sort of said about social media, I think I think that does upset me sometimes that people sort of follow um, people with no qualifications at all. Um, who you know an influencer who says oh I do this fad diet or I do that and and that they do that and and sort of that misinformation is sort of almost sexy in a way that evidence-based information isn't and it propagates a lot quicker and I I so I, I think it's really important for people to find you know wherever they get their information from but from a sort of a solid grounding where it's informed information that's credible that they can rely on yeah I think sadly though um you know there is a bit of a worrying trend where you start seeing sort of healthcare professionals perhaps stepping outside of their lanes or perhaps that may be endorsing certain products as well or maybe quite passionate or invested in a particular type of diet and and I think Mm. when that happens and of course social media is so accessible now that it makes it difficult then for you as say a general practitioner to kind of then speak to speak to the public about it because hmm. I think extremes of anything is is not good like we know that uh, but it is there is a bit of a, a ripple that's happening and it does worry me sometimes that perhaps some doctors specifically you know c- could be taking things a bit far and maybe stepping out of their kind of realms of, of what they should be advocating um, and that that's where we probably need to keep a close eye to be honest. I think it's a really valid point. Yeah, I think there are a lot of doctors. Uh, again, that's the other thing is is you we say be careful where your information comes from, and you kind of think, oh well, you know, if you're a doctor, then you should should know what you're talking about. But like Poonam said, you see people who are um, talking about things that you think, hmm, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable speaking about that. Um, you know, from a kind of general health point of view, and find if they've got additional qualifications or degrees that they've done um then that's fair enough but um certainly yeah i think that's it's it's using it's taking that doctor title and abusing it in in a in a way um so how do you monitor that how do you police that i i don't know i don't have i don't have the answer i guess i sort of self police in a way the sort of you know the sort of gmc guidelines of of social media and 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 things but i, I agree it's really it's really hard and there's certainly been some things i've seen on social media that i've been absolutely you know just speechless by so and I, which is which is really sad i think but um so speech is not in a good way but you know obviously <laughs> totally horrified and and really appalled that you know mm. that doctors could do that but um I, I guess for the most part you know doctors are coming up with evidence-based trustworthy medicine and staying in their lane and providing information that you can trust but but certainly I think with any information you really want to know what the references are and what it what it means and what it means for you and you need someone to help interpret that I think that's exactly it I think it's about what happens on the ground because I think Mm. that we can whilst you know when we're talking about evidence-based medicine absolutely every single one of us clinicians that's what we practice but 
I think that as GPs, we are very much at that interface where we are looking after people on the ground. We are dealing with those interactions every single day. And it's got to all translate down to what does Joe Bloggs on the street, what are they able to do? You need to be able to translate that to the lay public and, you know, be realistic with them. Uh, and I think that that's where, the, you know, that differentiates kind of different types of clinicians because we can spout off studies and we can do all that. But when it comes down to going, okay, you have high cholesterol or your risk of heart disease over the next five years is X and they have a particular type of diet or lifestyle come from a, a particular you know, background, um, you need to be able to kind of help them in a way that is going to make a difference to their life. They're not going to be interested in the statistics. They're not going to be interested in how many people in randomized control trials you've seen. So I think it's about... It's about just kind of coming back to basic principles again of like, what are the changes that you can really make and understanding when we went into medical school, what was the purpose of that? It was really to kind of help people, wasn't it? Um, mm. And we need to meet them where they're at. Agree. And and also, I think um, sort of the reverse of that is that people sort of saying, oh, well, I've seen this in mice and this effect works in mice. But I think it's a real art being able to... Um, to really understand a scientific paper and to know what the different models are. And certainly it's something that I didn't know until I did, I did a laboratory based PhD and I was um, a research fellow before that. And so I'd had a lot of research experience and it was really only doing my PhD and applying for the grants, my PhD, that I understood what a cellular model, what an animal model, what these different models were and how, what the pros, what the cons, what information you could get out of them, what questions you could ask. So there's a huge, huge gulf between taking something from cells to animals to humans. And just because you've seen it in a mouse does not mean that we should all be jumping on that and we should all be, be taking that intervention. I think um, so. it's about really understanding the science and how it translates and how it translates to you in an accessible way is, is, is not easy. Yeah. And this is why communication and collaboration is important. I think that those that are very good at reading and understanding the research papers and the studies and the trials, I think that's incredible. You know, like, honestly, like, it's not for me. <laughs> so like, I love I love looking after my patients and kind of being able to translate what we need to do to get our patients through their condition. But I think that that's where respect for mutual kind of professions has to be. You know, we cannot be very gung-ho about what we're doing and think that we are only the right people and we know it all it's got to be like, okay, well, there's lot, there's a spectrum. We all ultimately should have one goal in sight, which is ultimately to put all this stuff that we have to be able to help that one person. Because it's the real world data that really matters at the end of the day is just how does this all, you know, translate. Um, Absolutely, and that really truly patient-centered care. Whether, yeah, you know. whereas sadly, these days we kind of hear, particularly in the world of nutrition, I don't know how you do it, mm. but there are constantly divisive wars and, I think that sometimes the kind of real ethos of of, of what what nutrition and why we why it matters is lost, um, mm. because it it takes away from actually management of disease or prevention of disease and looking after people to I'm right you're wrong this is this is what we need to be doing and it becomes so and I I absolutely get it's needed, but there has to be a, a unifying moment as well where we have to understand what's the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. And long term health really has to be key. 
And I do not mean to annoy any nutritionist by saying this. I'm a GP, so it's a cover of my <laughs> generalist point of view. No, um, but it's true. I think sometimes it seems like a bit of a popularity contest at times. Like, I think that people you know the the wars that see the battles and in inverted commas that we've seen on instagram i think that ultimately they start with a very valid point to say look this isn't a good idea this is not founded in any sense but it then as time goes on it gets it builds up doesn't it and i think um it becomes bigger than really it it, it should be and like you said it's more of like a battle between personalities they almost sometimes you know, seem to be like personal vendettas against other people and a lot of name bashing, which um, is not is not helpful and kind of takes away from it all. And I think ultimately it's just it's just respect for the science, isn't it? Like I think a lot of um, especially what we've seen with kind of COVID and the pandemic and all of these astounding myths um that have come as a result of this and you know you can eat x y and z to prevent getting covid or to make you better from covid i think that um and people you know denying that covid even exists i think that i don't know you just sometimes think there are so many advances that are happening in the world of science and kind of just on evolutionary terms but then you just i just can't believe that we are here where there are where things can be so divisive and people can think that they've done that there's that phrase that comes up all the time I've done my own research you know you should do your own research and I don't know I I, even as a doctor as a GP like you said very generalist I don't feel confident interpreting scientific papers because that's not something that I do on a general basis on a daily basis at all that's not part of my job and so I find that phrase really difficult to understand and to hear um, if it is coming from um, from the public. And I'm not saying that people aren't intelligent enough at all, but I just think when you think of all of the training that has to go into it, and like mm. you said, the understanding and that you yourself, you know, discovered all of this when you were doing yeah. a PhD, that just highlights the kind of level that um, of, of science that we're talking about. Yeah. No, I agree entirely. And before I did my PhD, I'd done nearly a year in the laboratory doing doing pure science and, and doing all of these things. So for me, it was a long learning curve. And I feel it's only through doing you know, three really hard years doing my PhD, hard years of work and understanding the laboratory techniques that I can now confidently read a paper and understand understand it. So um, yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it? I, I absolutely agree. I think we've all got different skill set. We all need to sort of work together and work, play to our strengths and remember sort of why we're doing it at the end of the day. Certainly for me, it's about sharing credible evidence and insight into how it translates to empower people, um, which I you know, I think is really similar overlap with, with medicine in general about you know empowering people to look after their own long-term health and have the knowledge and, you know, to do that. And I think that's so important mm. because, you know, I've learned so much from sort of my sort of nutrition colleagues and sort of, you know, we're, we're referring patients all the time because, you know, we're not the experts as doctors. We're simply not the experts. I mean, we, we said we, we weren't taught this stuff. We have interests in it. 
and ultimately we learn a lot is because you know we have these concepts we we are the ones that are dealing with our patients and we need to guide them we haven't got the luxury of weeks and weeks and weeks to wait sometimes for referrals to take place and sadly on the NHS we do need to get more resources in place to be able to have more accessibility for these things um but at the same time, you know, I, I think doctors are very good at staying in their lanes. I don't think doctors, unless they have, you know, like yourself, and I have so much respect for all this extra work that you've done, you know, we, we were not the experts in nutrition and we never claimed to be. It's been really great hearing, you know, there's so many, so many great initiatives now, I think, are just in their infancy trying to, you know, really help medical students with, you know, greater understanding and doctors and, and GPs that, I think doctors as a whole, secondary care, primary care, it doesn't really matter where you are. You know, prevention is is, is key, really. Um, yeah. And I think we're, we're all agreed on that. It's just how you how you get that into the how you integrate it more into the NHS. But no, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you both. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us on. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really hope you enjoyed listening and I'd love if you'd give me a five star review and subscribe so that other people can find me too. I'm also at Healthy Eating Doctor on Instagram and I have lots more nutrition education information on both my video courses and on my website healthyeatingdoctor.com.